You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, all eyes were on the recovery and what can be done to maintain the narrative that 2021 will be a year for growth. Last week's U.S. jobs report and recent data from KBW paint a picture that federal stimulus will be a key cog in making that narrative stick. After some initial jolts of renewed optimism over a bipartisan compromise, talks over a $908 billion pandemic relief plan have slowed, with Republicans and Democratic negotiators struggling to get past the same roadblocks of liability protections and state and local aid. KBW's Restoration Index that tracks various points on the recovery says any further economic comeback will need a push from stimulus. So we caught up with the woman behind that index, Catherine Mueller, an analyst at KBW. So one thing that we do at KBW is we track um, the economic recovery from the KBW Restoration Index, um, which was an index that we created to track weekly changes um, to a number of different data points. We track 13 different data points. They range from mortgage applications, open table seating, unemployment, air traffic, and rail traffic. And um, we've been really bullish on the recovery from this index. It started at 100 in February, hit a bottom of 50 in April when we were at the depths of the lockdown and has been a slow grind back to 79, Mm -hmm. um, where we sat just last month. Um, So we've been really bullish and that's tracked alongside the recovery of financial stocks in the market, of course. Uh, But one thing that we're keeping a real close eye on recently, and again, to your question, this is why we're, we're really focused on the importance of the stimulus, is our index has fallen for the past five consecutive weeks in a row. And this past week, we actually saw the biggest decline that we've seen since April. And the decline was down 6%. Um, we fell from 79 to 74, yeah. uh, which we believe was, is a red flag that we're going to continue to see some weak economic data over the next couple of weeks. With regards to the components that go into this index, I mean, how are they weighted? Are there things that say that sort of maybe you look at and that, that maybe drive, I guess, changes in the other? I mean, I look at mobility as sort of being a big aspect of this, and I feel like that feeds into everything. I mean, if we're not leaving the house to go anyplace, then there's not going to be any ac- economic ac- activity. For sure. And so it, it's equal weighted. Um, so it's it's 13 different in data points that are all equally weighted. And it's interesting, this past week, um, out of the 13 data points, 10 were negative and only three were positive. Hmm. So the three that were positive were airport traffic. Makes sense. It was Thanksgiving week. Mm-hmm. Uh, retail sales takes into account Black Friday. 
jobless claims. We had two weeks of negative data points on jobless claims, and then jobless claims actually had a positive week this past week. And of course, unemployment came down as well. So that was that was a positive. But everything else was negative. I mean, mobility was negative, And we don't know if that's because COVID cases were higher or because we all stayed at home uh, because it was Thanksgiving week. But also businesses open declined, open table seatings declined, right. a number of hours and employees work declined. So I think it's a combination of the Thanksgiving week, but also what's happening in the economy due to the rise in COVID cases. So I'm curious thinking about it from a client's perspective, people looking at this data. You know, we've seen so much interest over the last six or so months, I guess longer now, about real-time data and the open table data and the uh, mobility data. Do you think this is going to be going forward, even after this crisis ends, a permanent shift in how people look at the economy where people just won't accept waiting for the weekly initial claims report or the monthly jobs report and want sort of more real-time snapshots all the time of what's going on uh, in the macro situation? I think so. I mean, it's been helpful for us. I mean, we're financial analysts, so we're looking at it through the lens of, of how to recommend financial stocks to our clients. And so for us, if you think back to last cycle, we were waiting for GDP data and unemployment data that we only got monthly. And so it was really hard to be able to give real-time advice to clients when we were trying to wait when was the right time to jump back into financial stocks. And so we're using this as a gauge of, you know, we're, we're very excited about the vaccine. We're hopeful that there's stimulus, but, um, you know, there's also a lot of negative trends out there. And so we're trying to balance the excitement around the vaccine and the hope that we'll get stimulus with some of the negative trends that we're seeing that may derail the rally in financials that we've seen over the past few months. And with regards to sort of the, uh, or the potential uptick, I guess, that, that we might see uh, that the market is expecting here, is this something that you think is going to be synchronized amongst the various data points, hmm. or is it going to be a little bit more uneven? I think it's uneven. I mean, you can see even week to week, the different data points move, you know, really week to week, and especially this past week, because it was Thanksgiving, you, you saw that as well. So, you know, if, if you think back to some of the, the data points that really rallied throughout um, April to October, um, you know, it was it was mortgage applications were very strong. Retail sales were very strong. Even mobility got better throughout mm. the summer mm -hmm. months, and that's pulled back recently. And so then just this past week, then you saw a flip. You saw the mobility pull back, um, and you actually saw mortgage applications pull back a little bit. So, you know, it, it does fluctuate week to week. Um, but one way that we look at it as well is we break it into four different categories, mobility, consumer, uh, commercial, and then unemployment. And so that try tries to show us within those categories what's performing better and what's lagging. And the two broader categories that have lagged really all since April have been, as you would expect, unemployment and mobility. And so those are the two biggest factors that we're looking to see an improvement before we can really get the second lag of the recovery on financial stocks. This week was one of record highs in the market with everything from IPOs to benchmarks to crypto surging. Those sky-high levels for cryptocurrencies are leading to increased acceptance of digital currencies, and fintech companies like Square are taking full advantage. So we got an outlook for the space and how they are riding the crypto wave with BTIG fintech analyst Mark Palmer, who upgraded Square to a buy rating in November, given the growth of the cash app. And we started by asking Mark if opening up cryptocurrencies was a real revenue mover for these companies and how much he thought the cash app was worth. With regard to the, this cash app, I think it's important to look at 
the role that Bitcoin plays as a means of acquiring new customers. Uh, the company is not making a tremendous amount of money on Bitcoin in and of itself. Mm. Most of it is a pass-through. Uh, but the number of users that have been attracted to the platform as a consequence of Bitcoin is it, really what matters here. And I think uh, uh, looking at Cash App from a bigger picture standpoint, the role that it is playing is helping the unbanked and underbanked to have a banking account equivalent. Um, particularly when the stimulus checks were coming out under the CARES Act, um, a lot of folks didn't want to have to wait days or weeks in order to actually receive a check. If they signed up for the Cash App, they could get their money much more quickly. So it's addressing the needs of the unbanked and the underbanked on the one hand. Hmm. It's also facilitating the buying and selling of Bitcoin on the other. You know, what you have there is the makings of what could be a super app along the lines of what Alipay has been in China. Wow. But Mark, how, how much of a USP is this when you're seeing Visa cards being rolled out that could potentially be an in on Bitcoin, when you see PayPal adopting it too? Mm -hmm. How much is Square going to remain the be all and end all when it comes to wanting that sort of access and that sort of serving of the underbanked? Well, again, I, I think that uh, even the role of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and blockchain writ large in terms of serving the underbanked is something that is really not fully appreciated yet. I mean, the reality is that um, without having to go through a traditional bank, uh, there is definitely a role that blockchain can play in, in helping the unbanked to have a place to store their money. And I think that what you're going to hear about in 2021 uh, as a start is that sort of a function. And it's not just going to be in this sort of role with regard to the Square Cash App, it's gonna be in money transfer, it's gonna be uh, in um, all sorts of other applications uh, that we're really on the forefront of. What has happened in 2020 is that we've seen a massive acceleration in the adoption of digital payments and the sort of applications like Cash App, uh, PayPal and others uh, that have enabled consumers to bypass traditional banks. Uh, now, with that said, we fully expect that the traditional banks are going to have their own response here and they're going to want to play a role. Yeah. Uh, but it's not going to look the way that banking has looked for the last 50 years. It's going to be very different. And uh, it's going to pave the way for more inclusion, uh, again, of the unbanked and underbanked, of which there are 1.5 billion in the world. Yeah, and it's certainly, I mean, you do have worry about uh, whether the big banks do make a, a significant push into this. I am also curious about the other big bank out there, and that's the Fed. I mean, the general mm -hmm. sense here is that people are sort of, uh, I guess, trying to work against uh, the potential for a downdraft in the dollar, given all the fiscal stimulus that's coming out, that's already come out of Washington and that might come out of Washington next year. It's here, though, that you could see the Fed or the Treasury really try to defend that sovereign uh, currency status. Well, you know, there, there definitely is going to uh, be a period when regulatory clarity is going to be more. This is an embrace of cryptocurrency. We've seen that the Chinese government um, with their central bank digital currency, which is now being have been rolled out in force in China in preparation for the uh, 2022 Olympic Games. Um, you are seeing the United States and the Eurozone talking seriously about uh, new digital currencies. So I think that there's a sense that this technology is, is coming. 
and that certainly uh, the, the cash dollar is going to uh, play a big role going forward. Right. Um, but, but it is definitely, and again, as your prior guest had mentioned, uh, the, the nice thing about Bitcoin is scarcity, that, that well, there is a finite number of Bitcoin in the world. Hmm. You're not going to have the same problem you have with fiat currency, yeah. with the printing presses running constantly with central governments in full stimulus mode. Marco, we just have about a minute left. Real quickly, setting Bitcoin aside, you look at the rise of these apps like uh, Square's Cash App and so forth and the threat they pose to traditional banks. Do we get to a point where they do start meaningfully taking customers away from the big banks and the big banks start shrinking, basically losing retail business because people can get enough of their services from an app that they download on the App Store? The way we look at it is that's going to be the next layer of adoption. Um, again, I think in the here and now, when, when you have, uh, according to the FDIC, you know, over 40 million unbanked people in the United States, uh, there is a role to be played by these apps to address that problem on the forefront. Now, as these apps become uh, more and more uh, prevalent and as their functionality increases, then you're going to be bringing in uh, those additional users. And, and at that point, I, I, we fully expect that there's going to be a, um, a response from the banks. Uh, there's a lot of talk about disintermediating the banks and moving around them. Uh, frankly, you know, we don't expect that to be the case. We expect that you're going to see partnerships uh, between the banks yeah. and the fintech space. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. <laughs> making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. EM stocks indeed took a bit of a pause this week, but the long-term picture has them testing highs we haven't seen in years. The MSCI benchmark is flirting with a peak reached in 2018, and some strategists think that next year, developing nation stocks are poised to break through their all-time high set in 2007. And it's not just stocks. Investors are favoring bonds and currencies, too. Wednesday, we added a little more fuel to the EM fire when Hungary and Poland lifted their veto over a landmark EU stimulus package. So we spoke about what it could mean for Global FX with Brown Brothers Harriman, Global Head of Currency Strategy, Win Thin, and we started by asking Win if he sees more dollar weakness ahead. Yes, near term, uh, I, I continue with the dollar weakness. Uh, I'm not one of those, you know, sort of uh, uber bears from dollar. I, I think we're in a, remain in a cyclical downturn. That is, the Fed is ultra dovish. Uh, the U.S. economy is underperforming because we, we just can't get this virus under control yet. Uh, and so I see... Dollar weakness continuing into Q1. Now, once Mr. Biden gets in, a new administration, um, we have some, hopefully, uh, the vaccine starts rolling out, then I think we can start to, to, to sort of carve out a bottom for the dollar. But, you know, for the next month or two, I think it's going to be pretty dicey. Um, you know, Europe is already, if you look at the numbers, it's already, you know, banging the curve again. Hmm. 
Um, and, you know, just since the mid-November peak, they're already starting to control the virus yet again. So, um, you know, I think that's the really what's behind this dollar underperformance right now. So the European curve is going down. The U.S. curve is going up. Euro, of course, has been on a you know pretty strong multi-month rally against the dollar last few days uh, accepted. Do the EM Europe currencies, the Forint, the Zloty, and so forth, do they act as sort of high beta euro here? And so if euro is going to outperform, they're going to even outperform that? Yeah, that, that's what we're seeing. I mean, it, it, just pretty much EM across the board has been on a tear. Um, but, you know, certainly the, the uh, Eastern European, of course, they're, you know, subject to some weakness with this the whole um, fallout with the with the EU budget and, and recovery fund. But, you know, thankfully that, I think, has been laid to rest. Um, look, we've got a couple other event risks. This is an incredibly uh, eventful week in terms of risk, right, events. Uh, you know, we've hopefully got the, the EU budget out of the way, but, uh, you know, obviously Brexit is still out there. Possible government shutdown is still out there. Um, you know, I think they'll all be re resolved, uh, which I think is still favorable for, for risk and emerging markets. Probably the Brexit is what, what I have the least conviction about. I mean, that's it's almost a coin toss at this point. Yeah, exactly. And so, I, I mean, dare I go there? I know we're talking emerging markets, but quickly, when on on the pound, what are you expecting in there? Well, you know, it's it's so binary, right? If we get a deal, um, you know, we'll probably go up, you know, towards one thirty five, one forty. If we don't, we're down below, you know, one twenty five. But I probably I think there's risk of an asymmetric move. That is, I think most in the market, such as, such as myself, are, are pricing in some sort of what you call a skinny deal. You know, some limited deal where everyone can claim victory. And move on and, and ha hash out the details next year. Uh, so I think most in the market are, are, are positioned for that. So, you know, if we do get a deal, okay, sure, the sterling will rally a bit. But asymmetrically speaking, I think no one, you know, are very few are positioned the other way. And so there's much more risk of a bigger move to the downside if we get no deal. You know, again, it's a, it's a coin flip. You know, the last thing you know, we need, uh, the, U the UK or the EU needs at this in the middle of the pandemic is hard Brexit, right? And so I think that's what. I think most of us are basing our call on is that, yeah, okay, these politicians should do the right thing. But as I think Joe was joking earlier, you know, to, you know, the politicians don't always, uh, you know, act rationally and do the right thing. So it's, it's um, you know, just fingers crossed. That's all I'll say. When, with regards to just the, the broader macro risk ahead, I mean, what sort of pairs are we still looking at? I mean, during the trade war and during uh, prior to the COVID crisis, a lot of folks, of course, were looking at the Aussie dollar and the yen and the, the Kiwi yen. Uh, what do you look at now? Yeah, so look, yeah, you know, risk at this point, you know, if you look at the equity markets, EM, we're pricing in, you know, to me, a, um, uh, an end of the pandemic in two, 2021, right? The virus rollout, the growth resumes, uh, commodity prices are buoyant. So, you know, we're starting to see that fall into place. Uh, but again, you know, it's, you want to talk about asymmetric positioning, I think, you know, almost everyone is positioned for that. Uh, and so if there is some sort of, uh, you know, God forbid, some sort of third wave or some sort of hiccup right. on the virus, you know, that's that's where I think the bottom falls out. So you know, again, it's um, you know, the policymakers around the world are doing what they can, both monetary and fiscally. But it's it's really to me a matter of getting this virus under control. I, I hate to sound well, like a broken record. No, it's important. But at some point, the virus will be under control. Maybe by the middle of next year. And then the question, to my mind, that I keep going back to is, what does the post-crisis environment look like? Because uh, pre-crisis. Uh, EM hadn't done well in a long time and perpetually underperforming. Do we just go back to the old normal or are there conditions in place such that post-crisis might look in some way meaningfully different than the pre-crisis trading environment? No, that's a great question, Joe. I think the, the main difference is that we're going to have a different president, right? If you remember, the, the last two years have, have been, you know, 
incredibly volatile and, and really quite negative for EM, mainly from this uh, this misguided trade war that we've been seeing. Now, I'm not saying that China's you know an angel that hasn't done the right thing, but the, I think the way that uh, Mr. Trump approached it to me was was um, not the best way. You know, bilateral tariff-driven approach to me is second best. You know, I think it's better for Mr. Biden to come in and get multilateral uh, approach and, and in some ways you know uh, isolate China. Um, but I do think it's an end to the, the sort of tit-for-tat trade wars, which I think were very, very bad for emerging markets. Uh, the liquidity story is incredibly positive for emerging markets, right? I mean, you know, we're going to see another slug of stimulus tomorrow from the ECB. Uh, the Fed is still, you know, printing uh, dollars like there's no tomorrow. Uh, Bank of England, everywhere around the world, the liquidity story is, is there. And that's, I think, um, very positive for emerging markets. That's what's very different now than pre-pandemic. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Now, the star of Thursday's trading was Airbnb. Its shares more than doubled in their trading debut, propelling the company to a $100 billion-plus valuation and one of the biggest first-day rallies on record. That came on the heels of DoorDash, which saw its shares surge in its Wednesday debut. The two companies are the most recent examples of investor exuberance. Investors chasing gains, helping to push the Nasdaq and tech stocks to record highs, even as some notable big names face increasing regulatory risk. There have been some out there who see the surges as excessive, but people keep putting their money to work in these eye-watering IPOs. So we got some perspective on the space with Lee Drogan, the founder and CEO of Estimize, an open financial estimates platform designed to collect forward-looking financial estimates from independent buy-side and sell-side analysts, along with those of private investors and academics to provide a more accurate and representative view of expectations compared to sell-side-only data sets. So we started by asking Lee if he was surprised at the rallies we saw in both DoorDash and Airbnb. I wasn't very surprised by Airbnb. You know, one of, one of the things, uh, just sentiment indicators, I have some kind of normie, non-financial friends who over the last couple of weeks had given me a call and said, you know, I'm going to buy this Airbnb IPO. And I said, at what price would you buy it? And they said, well, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to buy it. Right. And, and I, but I do think that it's representative of more general sentiment regarding the long-term viability of Airbnb. I think DoorDash is a little bit of a different story uh, largely because, you know, people have been a little burned. Um, there were a lot of companies in the delivery space that didn't work out. So I think some people were actually a little surprised at how well DoorDash has done fundamentally and made progress, you know, towards being profitable here. But when it comes to Airbnb, I think everybody is looking out for five, six years and saying, if yeah. this company isn't a $300 billion company, I think everybody would be very surprised given the, hmm. you know, the addressable market and the very direct uh, monetizable model. 
Yeah, I mean, this uh, is clearly a, a bet on growth. I mean, we joke, of course, about the, the, the lack of profitability here. But with DoorDash, you're talking about a company that, by some estimates, has about 50 percent market share uh, of the U.S. Uh, delivery um, space. And Airbnb, of course, you know, has a certain sort of a niche all to itself uh, for the most part at this moment. A lot of these stocks, a lot of these companies really are in a place where uh, if all goes well, they can deliver some phenomenal growth. Right, Lee? And, and I think that's what these people are seeing, you know, the, the Robin Hood traders, as well as the institutions. They're sitting there saying, look, if you're going to make a long term bet, if you're going to be a real investor, you want to invest in companies with huge total addressable markets that are, look like they're on the runway to you know, achieve a good portion of those. And when you look at Airbnb, there, there's nothing, you know, there's, there's not much better out there right now. The other interesting thing about Airbnb right now is that because of what happened in 2020, the comps in 2021 are going to be really, really easy. So, hmm. you know, when we come around the, the turn here for the next year, they're going to have four reports that are, you know, pretty easy to you know put up really great numbers on the 2022 numbers i think are good obviously the comps are going to be a lot harder there uh but if you have a year runway where you basically get a free pass on what the revenue growth is going to be uh, that's a that's a pretty good recipe for you know for a big pop in an ipo what about doordash um you know uh, again massive no profits in a year in which uh you know, business for takeout may be one of the best years ever, given uh, the boom in takeout. Really cutthroat industry. A lot of questions about all these so-called gig economy stocks. There's anxiety about the restaurants, many of whom, many of which feel frustration that they're giving too much of a cut. And yet, despite all these concerns, uh, investors paying uh, quite a bit of a quite a bit for it. Is there should there be any anxiety about their ultimate path to profitability or is it a clear runway for them as well? Yeah. So at the risk of doubling down on a, a bad bet or not bet, but a, a bad viewpoint that I think I've held for a very long time. I, I don't love this company here in the market right now for that exact reason. And that's one, you're going to deal with incredibly difficult comps in 2021, given, you know, the what we will have somewhat of a recession, uh, you know, in, in delivery back towards, you know, experiential dining uh, in person at some point in right. 2021 here. Um, and so that's obviously going to make growth a little bit harder. But but more to the point, and, and I've been wrong about this, and that's why DoorDash is interesting, because they have made believers out of some people in regards to the actual fundamental model. I did not like the fundamental model for any of these companies, and for many of them, I was right. For this one, it looks like I was wrong, um, which is why I think DoorDash has surprised a lot of people with the market cap that it's been given here. Personally, out of all the names here, the high growth names that get high valuations that I would want to be invested in, DoorDash, just not one of them. Hmm. Lee, it's interesting because these are B2Cs and they're being helped an awful by retail investment. Is this something that can be perpetuated if you get more of a B2B? I mean, we saw it with Snowflake too, to a certain degree, but that had the power, star power of the Oracle of Omaha behind it. But I'm interested in how much retail can continue to sustain these sorts of levels in IPO and how much the buy side that you speak to can really factor in retail interest. Look, they're definitely looking at a lot of different measures of it. I think there's been a lot of talk about the, uh, you know, the put call ratio and 
you know, just how uh, the adoption of of using calls in the market and, and playing options. And I see a lot of those charts going around online. And, and one interesting thing for me is that I don't think it's necessarily a measure of sentiment. I think it's a measure of user adoption of another way to invest, um, which doesn't necessarily say that it's a huge upside speculative bubble here. Um, you know, should a lot of these people be using call options? Uh, do they really understand what they're doing? Probably not. But there are a lot of products that have been adopted where users don't really understand what they're doing and they continue to be adopted at larger rates. And I don't see that as something that's going to turn around. It's definitely a secular, you know, there's a secular growth trend in uh, in using options. Uh, certainly some of the, the new brokerages right. have made it easier to do so. Um, and the institutions are definitely taking note of that and how that uh, impacts, you know, some of these, um, you know, kind of better known names. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.